freedom. Part two, we started this uh, message last week. It was supposed to be the last message in this series. Actually, uh, it actually will become part three next Sunday, and then we'll wrap up next Sunday. Easter people living as people of freedom, and you're not here by accident today. We got a great message today. I'm just so, I was so encouraged in studying and some of the things that God has showed me. I'm excited to share them with you this morning. Um, I, I read a story and it reminded me of an experience that I have, have often had, and maybe you've had this as well, right? You know, it's like you're, you're heading somewhere and, and you're kind of like maybe even running late. It always happens when you're running late, right? And you're running somewhere and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, where are my keys at? And I can't find my keys anywhere, right? And you run around the house looking for your keys and you're late. You got to go. And after a couple of minutes, then you start to assign blame. Well, okay. Okay. Who took my keys? Come on. Who hid my keys? They were right here. I know they were right here. And you start to get upset with other people in the house who somehow obscured your keys. And then, you know, you're running in the bedroom and you put your hand in your pocket and all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, there they are right there. <laughs> Maybe you've had that experience or, or a similar experience, you know, you're looking all over the place and then you get out to the car again. Oh, I put them in the, I already put them in the thing to go. They're already in the car. Uh, we do that. We frantically and frustratingly search for those things that we already have. And I think that is somewhat a picture of life. We're looking for what we already have. I think that's the world of people today is looking for, for that that they can so easily have in Christ. And we who are Christians, we have these things that we look for. Things like justification and approval and significance and security and freedom and purpose and meaning and validation and love and righteousness. And we have all these things in Christ and we look for them in a thousand other places that are less significant than Christ. And that sometimes marks our life and we need to know that we have these things. In fact, we fail as we go through life working and struggling and, and, and you know, trying to, 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 trying to find this approval, trying to find that significance, trying to find that validation. We fail to hear the echo of the cross. And what's the echo of Jesus from the cross? The echo from the cross is real simple. It is finished. You have all the validation you need. You have all the love you need. You have all the mercy and forgiveness and acceptance and approval and grace and purpose. Everything you could want, it was finished at the cross. So this morning we're continuing last Sunday's message that we are living in freedom. Living in freedom. And the reality is we were designed, we were wired. We talked about it last Sunday. To live in freedom. People want to come to America because well, this is the home of the free and the land of the brave. You come here and you get all kinds of free stuff, right? <laughs> you can get all kinds of free goodies in America. Let's get, get to America. But no, the reality is it's true. We are a free country and we were designed and wired to live in freedom. And living in anything but freedom will lead to a life of what? Frustration. We'll be frustrated. It's kind of that reality of that conflict we talk about as believers if we're a believer and we're not living in freedom, we will live a life of conflict. We will. And so here's those two key verses we looked at last week, or really one verse and two translations I used here. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In an, in an easier-to-read translation, Christ has freed us so that we may enjoy the benefits of freedom. Therefore, be firm in this freedom and don't become slaves again. We have been set free to live free. And there's a, simple, there's a simple principle at the core of this verse. There is a theological truth that is supposed to influence my practical reality. The theological truth is I have been set free and so I should live as if I am free. It's, we looked at it in different ways in this series. Uh, I am dead to sin, says Paul, so I should consider myself dead to sin. I don't want to sin, I'm dead to it. I should consider myself that. There, there's other ways that we can look at this and we can apply this. There is no condemnation, theological truth, so I shouldn't go around living like I've got the, all this guilt on me. Because there is no condemnation. There's a theological truth that is supposed to influence my practical reality. But the flip side of that, we need to know the flip side, is that regardless, our practical reality will never change God's theological truth. So you may not live like a free person. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not free. It just means you're foolish. You're free. 
So let's learn to live like we are free. And the reality is people of the resurrection, being Easter people who are people of the resurrection, who live the resurrection out every single day, we will live in freedom. That's what it means. Last week we said this, when Christ walked out of the grave and into our life, He set us free so we should live free. That's the reality. Christ walked out of that grave and He walked into your life and my life. When we put our faith and trust in Him, that's what He did. He came to live in us and He set us free. And so the reality is, as Easter people, we should be living in freedom. That's the heart of these now three messages. It'll take three weeks to unpack all that God has put on my heart here. So, here's what we looked at last week. Three things. We talked about these three freedoms last week. We're free from the guilt of our conscience, we're free from the power of sin, and we are free from the fear of the unknown. Okay, we're going to build on this today, and here's our fourth freedom. We are free from earning God's approval. We need to know that we are free from earning God's approval. And sometimes we have people in our life that maybe make us earn their approval. Don't transpose that to God. Realize that you do not have to earn God's approval. In fact, you cannot earn God's approval. And we will talk about that for the entirety of this morning. And hopefully you will find this message comforting and you will find it empowering. Galatians chapter 5. Let's read the first six verses of Galatians 5 and start here. It says again, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And there's, a, there's 600 and some rules in the law. There's a lot of law there. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let me give you verses 4 and 5 again in that easier to read translation. Those of you who try to earn God's approval by obeying His laws have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen out of God's favor. However, in our spiritual nature, faith causes us to wait eagerly for the confidence that comes with God's approval. Okay, so we're just seeing in these verses, Paul is simply saying, you are free from earning God's approval. In fact, you can't earn God's approval. It is impossible to earn God's approval, and we need to learn and know what that looks like, and we're going to look at that today from three different perspectives that will help us understand, because I think sometimes we don't even know that we approach life like that, that we're living our life thinking, well, I don't, I don't have to, but we try to. We try to do things that will somehow make God love us more and give us more favor, and that's just not the way it works. Today's big idea is simply this. We don't live for God's approval. We live from God's approval. And when you get this down in your life, it's going to be huge. We don't live for God's approval. We live from God's approval. We have been set free to live free. And as we walk through this, I think that will resonate even more. Now, we just read these passages here in Galatians 5. And the illustration that Paul uses up front here is this illustration of circumcision. Now, This is a tough one for us. Let's be honest, circumcision has not been a big deal in our society for a long time, right? So when Paul talks about circumcision, it's like, well, big whoop. That hasn't meant anything to us forever. But you got to realize that for thousands of years, this was a big deal to the Israelite people. This was a 2,000-year at least ritual from from the time of Moses all the way to the time of, uh, uh, to, to really Paul comes on the scene. They practiced circumcision it was one of the ways they earned God's approval God looked down on them with favor when they practiced circumcision and so here comes Paul Paul gets saved and overnight Paul's going around saying you know what that circumcision thing yeah God's done with that in fact all of the law God's done with it God's not using the law anymore he set the law aside and um so you can see why people had a problem with Paul and it's like well wait a minute here time out time out circumcision this is a big deal 
And so you can look through Paul's writings, and we're not going to spend much time on it here today, other than this is the issue that kind of frames Paul's words here. We may actually touch on it more next Sunday in, a, in the next message because it comes up a little bit again. But here's the reality. Let me start here. What am I saying and what am I not saying? When I say we don't have to earn God's approval, what am I saying and not saying? Well, one thing I'm not saying, I, I'm not saying that God approves of everything we do, okay? So we live our life and God does not approve of everything that Bill Russell does or everything that Titus does or anything, everything that Wayne does or Jan. He doesn't approve of everything we do and say and think and every action in our life. What I'm saying is, regardless of how we act, regardless of what I think or do or say, God still approves of me, and I don't have to earn His approval. His approval of me is not based upon how I perform and how I act. So look at this from three perspectives with me. The first perspective is this, our rest in Christ. I want you to think this morning about our rest in Christ. We need to, as we go through life, we need to know that we have to rest in Christ. What does that mean? We need to know that when Christ hung on the cross and said, it is finished, the work is finished. And when the work is done, what do you do? You rest. You rest from the work. And we looked at this earlier in this series that Jesus, when he died, after he died and rose again, he went to heaven and he sat down at the Father's right-hand side. And why was that significant that he sat down? Well, when, the, when on earth, when the priest was on duty here on earth, he could never sit down. And Hebrews explains this. In Hebrews 10, it explains he could never sit down. He was constantly doing the work of offering the sacrifices because sin was always ongoing. When Christ did the work and gave his life as the one-time sacrifice, the work was done. And so he resurrected, he went to heaven, he sat down, said the work is now done. We get a picture of this though, I want to look at Hebrews 4, not Hebrews 10, Hebrews 4 today. In Hebrews 4 there's an illustration that that God uses to help us understand this rest issue. It's the illustration of the Sabbath. There's this this illustration of the Sabbath. Now, we know the Sabbath, right? God worked for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested from all of His work and all of His creation. He rested on day number seven, okay? And so God took that Sabbath principle or that Sabbath, made it a law for the Israelite people. It was one of their 630-some laws. One of the Ten Commandments was they had to what? Keep the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you had to rest from all your work. You had to not work, as it was the Sabbath, it was a holy day, part of the law. Well, here's what we, we learn in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, and it starts with Joshua. Joshua is the individual who leads the Israelites into the promised land, okay? For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So the, the reality here is that God gave a promise to the Jewish people of a, they would be a great nation, a, a great people, with great favor, and they would have this great land, the promised land, this land of milk and honey, this land of rest. And so Joshua led them into the land, but he says that wasn't the ultimate rest they were looking for. The promised land was symbolic of something greater to come. Hebrews 4, 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a greater rest than just that promised land there. 4.10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, question is, there at the end, who was it that fell through disobedience? Do you know who fell through disobedience and didn't enter their rest? Well, All of those Israelite people that Moses led out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's rule, and they went all the way to the promised land and got to the promised land, and he said, it's yours. You can go in and take it over. And and what did they do? They wavered in disbelief and acted in disobedience, and they would not go in and take the land. And that entire generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years 
Talk about not having rest. Wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now it says Joshua. And so that entire generation dies away. All of those people who refuse to go in are dead and gone and their children have come along and now Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. But the point is, that's not even the ultimate rest they are looking for. It is symbolic of a greater, a future rest. Yes, there's a literal nation. There is a literal kingdom, a literal land. But their ultimate hope is found in Christ. You can read the end of of the great faith chapter, Hebrews 11. It goes through all the great heroes of the faith. And it says in verse, I think it's verse 39, that even they didn't receive the ultimate promise. Because there is a greater promise for both them and you and me. They would not get their ultimate promise without us getting ours, which is what? What is the ultimate, the great Sabbath rest? It's when Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished. No more sacrifices needed. No more condemnation held over our head. We have been set free. You see, because the, the, hope of the, the ultimate hope of the Jewish people is the ultimate hope of you and I. It's Christ, what he did for us at Calvary. And we no longer have to earn his approval. Now, there's an interesting phrase here, though. It says, let us, right here, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, that's a strange sentence, right? What does it mean to strive? It means to work, right? So let us work, let us labor to enter that rest. Now, what does that mean? So is, is that saying that I'm doing some work or am I resting? What's the, what's the issue here? It can sound contradictory, but it really isn't. What Hebrews is telling us is that we have been set free, so we should live free. We have been, been given rest, so we must live in this rest. In other words, to rest means to stop working. Hebrews tells us Jesus stopped working, so we can stop working. So here's what it really could be saying to us. We could summarize it like this. I think the Sabbath illustration would be like this. There's a greater Sabbath rest that is found in Christ. Understand that, the greater Sabbath rest Hebrews speaks of. It's found in Christ. And then it's like this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest means this. Let us work at resting. Let us work really hard at trusting. Can I contend that maybe the greatest struggle we have as believers, our greatest, our greatest struggle, our greatest test, our greatest challenge is learning how to simply trust God and do nothing. Think about that. The hardest thing we have to do in the Christian life is simply to do nothing and trust that Christ has done it all. And in fact, until we come to this realization and understanding, we really can't do anything of value for God. My greatest struggle is to realize it's done. I don't have to work to earn God's approval. Now, let me just say, Hebrews is not implying that we don't do good works. It's just the opposite. The Bible says we were created and we were redeemed to do what? Good works. So I was created to do good. It's not like I'm not going to work anymore. Adam and Eve were in the garden and they worked in the garden before they sinned. Work is a natural part of who we are. In fact, when we don't have work, we're just going to feel unfulfilled. There's going to be something missing from us. The reality is, is that we don't work to earn God's approval. We can't work to earn God's approval. And so what I do is I, I have to learn how to work from this place of rest. Let me, let me give you a fascinating con- contrast here, okay? So God worked six days and rested on the seventh, right? And the Israelites worked six days and they rested on the Sabbath. They rested the Sabbath day was holy. Something happened after the, after the, the crucifixion and resurrection. After Christ came out of the grave, believers started to do what? They started to... Well, they started to celebrate on Sunday and not on Saturday. They started to worship on Sunday, and they didn't worship on Saturday. And they took, they took Sunday off to rest and not Saturday off. We don't see a lot of that in our culture today necessarily, but at one time, everybody rested on Sunday. All the businesses shut down. The question is why? Now, some people say the reason why is because Christ resurrected on Sunday, so everybody rested on Sunday. And that could factor in. But can I just contend to you, there's a different thing going on here. See, now, instead of working for six days, working really hard and resting from my work, now you know what I do? Now I come out and I celebrate and I worship and I rest on the first day of the week. And then everything I do the rest of the week, all of my service, all of my work, 
all of my ministry, everything that we pour out uh, comes out of us, comes out of our rest. Do you see the difference? I don't work for six days and then take a rest. That's in our mind. We kind of think that way. But the reality is spiritually is that, you know what? We come today and we rest and we worship and we sing songs of praise and we hear the scriptures and we build each other up in community and then we go out rested to go out and do the work God has for us to do. It's resting on the first day and not the last day because I'm acknowledging that everything I do comes from this place of rest, that Christ did the work and it's not me. So I serve from this place of rest, I share my faith, I worship all from this place of rest because it is finished, the work is done, and I no longer have to earn God's approval. So Hebrews 4, again, this is how Hebrews 4 said it, today we work from a place of rest, there's this greater Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's strive to enter that rest. You see, Jesus is done working. He is resting, and we can now rest as well. That's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Doesn't mean we stop living our life and stop going to work and stop doing things even for the Lord. It's just we do them from a place of rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does this look like? It looks like our big idea again, right? What was our big idea? Today, we don't live for God's approval. We live from God's approval. In the same way we don't work for God's approval, we work from God's approval. Two verses that can kind of highlight then what this looks like. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the imagery of this verse. So what are the good works? What are they? They are just the good works that naturally come out of me. We talk about last few weeks about being dead to sin, right? We're dead to sin. I don't want to sin. My natural inclination of my heart is not to want to sin. It's to want to do what God wants me to do. And the reality is, Doing good works, it's just the natural desire that God has put in our heart as a new creation with a new heart. And so we want to do these good works. And the reality is, is that what if the good works I do are simply, just as simple as walking in the Spirit? I just walk in the Spirit and, and these things just naturally flow out of me. That I just naturally do these good works that bring glory, as it would say in Matthew Bring glory to God. What if we often want to know God's will for our life? What if God's will is just as simple as walking in the Spirit? Walk in the Spirit and you'll just, you'll just fulfill God's will on a daily basis. These works will just pour out of you. Hebrews or Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Another great verse. So just, just walk in a manner worthy. And, and here again notice, this verse here, okay, I should walk worthy, why? Because I am worthy. I don't, I don't do good works and I don't walk a certain way to be made worthy, no. I walk worthy because I am worthy. I, uh, I live free because I am free. So we need to start there and understand that this morning. We don't work for His approval, we work from His Approval. I can rest from the hard work of trying to earn God's approval and realize that my hardest battle is striving to not try and earn His approval. It's putting all my trust in Christ and realizing that He is done working and I can be as well. In What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey recounts the story about C.S. Lewis. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. 
Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn God's approval. Only Christianity operates on grace and unconditional love. You do not have to earn God's approval. And we see that in the perspective of our rest. We see it in the perspective of our focus on Christ. Think about this. You, you want to you wanna understand how to live without earning God's approval. Think about our focus on Christ. And I'm going to give you an example here that shows you, I think, how easily in our life we get the focus off of Christ and what he did for us. And we get the focus on, well, how am I doing? And we do it in the most noble of ways. Look at this illustration with me. It's an illustration <clears throat> we have looked at Many times, in fact, last time we did communion, we, we looked at this pretty extensively. Here's what it says in, when it comes to communion. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often, or in the same way, he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion. We focus on Christ. We focus on what Christ did for us. We cr- focus on the cross and the incredible mercy and grace, right? Now, <clears throat> we get, come to these verses, and I've always wrestled with these verses, and we unpacked them pretty detailed last time we did communion. But whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I always wrestle with that verse because it says in an unworthy manner. I'm like, well, we just read it. We're worthy. We are worthy. So I'm not unworthy. So what's he talking about here? He goes on, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, we unpacked it last time. What was going on for the Corinthian people is they would get together for communion and they had a love feast because in the Bible, communion was always a meal. They had this love feast and everybody would come together for this love feast. Well, in the love feast, some people were coming in and uh, they were getting drunk. Others were coming in and they were just pigging out and hoarding down all this food. And others were coming in and they literally would go home hungry. And everybody kind of brought the food in and just kind of fed themselves. They didn't do a potluck like we do. They just came in and they all, look at what I brought. You know, look at my holy meal. My meal is more holy than yours. Look at, I'm having lamb and roast duck and, you know, I'm picking. And this person's starving over there. And so when, when uh, Paul said here, you need to discern the body, he's not talking about Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ. You're not discerning the body. You're a bunch of people that come together as one. You need to have a potluck. You need to have a love feast. You need to share equally. And you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're I don't approve of some more than others by the size of your glass or the size of your plate and your meal. So, you know, so this is the reality. This is what Paul says to them. So here's what Paul's telling them. Paul's telling them basically this. When you do communion, examine yourself and make sure your focus is in the right place. Make sure your focus is, this is about remembering what I did for you. This is about remembering that you're a part of the, the church family, that you're a body. Get your focus in the right place. Now, you know what we've done? We've kind of flipped that around on its head. I think what we often do, here's what we do today. We come together today and we, what, we have to examine my, I'm to do communion, I have to examine myself. And I got to sit here and say, Lord, what have I done that's, 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 that's out of sync with you? Where's my life out of line with you? And I start scouring my life to find out where I'm falling short of God and what I need to confess and what I need to repent of. And what I do, I end up taking the focus off of Christ's work and I put it on my works. We don't need to do that. Now the truth is when we take communion, <clears throat> if we're taking communion, and there's something in my life and he's pointed out, and God will point it out to me. 
The Spirit of Truth will point it out to me. The Holy Scriptures that can penetrate into my heart will point it out to me and say, hey, you know, there's something in your life that's troubling. <clears throat> but I don't need to sit there and try to say, Lord, is there anything that you're unhappy with? And Lord, what do I need to do a better job of? And Lord, no, communion is remembering what Christ did for me. Remembering the cross, remembering the grace, and, and, and just acknowledging, I don't have to earn your approval. I cannot earn your approval. But subtly we do those things because it's like, well, I need to own my stuff. I need to bring it before God, and I need to acknowledge that, yeah, I've, I am a pretty, I'm a pretty scummy person sometimes, and I'm sorry I'll let you down, God, and God knows all that. And God will show me anything he wants me to see. I don't got to go out and dig through my life to try to find all the evidences of where I'm missing the mark with God. Because the reality is you start going down that road, there's all kinds of stuff that we can dig up. God is an incredibly gracious God. We need to get the focus on Christ. I don't need to earn his approval. And the third uh, perspective here we can look at is for a moment is the glory of Christ. The glory <clears throat> of Christ. Think about the glory of Christ a minute. Think about the glory of Christ. Here's the question. What then would be God's goal for our life? I don't have to earn God's approval, but let's be honest. We should live a life that God approves of, Right? So I don't want it to make it sound like God has not, no spiritual interest for your life, that God has no goals for your life, that we don't need to be concerned with a life that God would approve of. So what kind of life would God most approve of? <coughs> Excuse me. Let's talk for a moment about a life such as just that. What are some goals that you could say God might have for your life and my life? What are some things we could say that, well, okay, um, for instance, a good goal, God would like me to read the Bible more. How many would say good goal? God would like me to pray more, right? God would like me to serve more and to share my faith more. And God wants me to learn how to give more. These are all the goals that God has for my life, doesn't he? In fact, I mean, think about it. So <clears throat> these are all measurable goals. Think about it. They're all measurable goals. We like measurable goals, right? We set goals in our business and goals in our personal life that we can measure. So if I'm reading two chapters a day, well, hey, I can read four. I can do more because that's the goal. And if I'm sharing my faith with two people a week, I can share it with four people a week because, again, the goal is more. And if I'm giving X amount of dollars, I can give more because the goal is that I just do more. That's the goal, right? The goal is more. You know, if you come to church 48 Sundays a year, you can come 50 Sundays a year. If you come to church 52 Sundays a year, you can find a church that starts at 8 o'clock and you can go 104 times a year because the goal is more, right? God wants more. No, God doesn't want more. Those aren't good goals. They really aren't good goals. They sound good and in our humanists they sound good because, well, yeah, if I read more, God will, will approve of me a little more. He'll like me a little more. I'll feel a little better about myself. What would be a good goal for my life? Well, know that our goal, God's goal for you, is not a performance-based goal. It's not some measurable thing that's performance-based. And that goes against our thinking. We think, well, God's got all these goals that I would meet all these performance marks and I would meet all these measurements and I would be, you know, someday I'd read three hours a day and pray three hours a day and... What would be a good goal? How about God's goal is that you would know him and bring him glory? Now, let me just tell you something. How do you measure knowing God? <laughs> you know, try to measure that as a goal, that you would know him. We're talking about an infinite God. I mean, you can't know him. I mean, really, the more you know him, the more you don't know him. But what about a goal like that and that you would bring him glory? I mean, how do you measure that again, that you bring him glory? I mean, really? To know God is to love Him and trust Him. To glorify God is to worship Him. Those are the goals God has for your life. Now, sure, maybe, maybe if I learn to read the Bible a little more, it will help those goals come to pass. If I learn to pray more, if I learn to give more or serve more, those things could. <clears throat> Sunday morning worship, it might help those goals. It might help me know God. Understand 
what the goal is. The goal is not the performance. The goal is the relationship. <clears throat> the goal is the relationship. I heard a great, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard a great, a great uh, illustration here. Somebody called into a radio a host, <clears throat> a, a Bible call-in show, and asked the person, okay, Bible translations, what's the best Bible translation? And the author, the, the person actually doing the host, the pastor, is actually a linguist who actually um, taught at Notre Dame a couple decades ago, so he's, he knows his stuff about languages. And He said, well, I, the best Bible, best translation word for word would be the interlinear Greek or Hebrew Bible. But when you read it, you find out you can't read it because the words are all out of order compared to our English language. It makes no sense. So there's other word-for-word -word translations like the King James. He said, then you get into, you can get into the phrase-for-phrase because phrase, sometimes in the word-for-word -word translations, well, there are some words that just aren't in our, our English language. There's no equivalent in our English, English language for some things in the Greek and Hebrew. So you get to the phrase-by-phrase -phrase translations and he talked about those. He said my, his personal preference was he used the NASB. But here's, I loved his answer. He boiled it down to this. He said, regardless of the type of translation you use, regardless of whatever translation you pick, here's what matters most when it comes to the scriptures. Know the author. I don't care what Bible you use, just get to know the author of that Bible. Because that's God's goal for your life. It's just that you would know him. It's just that you would know him. In fact, he said there are people out there that could translate the Greek and Hebrew more accurately than anyone into a Bible and not know the author. Think about that. So ultimately, when it, whatever Bible we choose, just get to know the author. We read this earlier in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he goes on. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think about that. We're body, soul, and spirit. We are body. That's our outward man, our flesh. That's the easiest part to identify of us. Then we have our, our psyche, our psychology, which is our will and our intellect and our emotions, all of that part of us, our passions and our abilities. My psyche, my psychology is who I am as an individual. And then there's my pneuma, my spirit. That's what died in the Garden of Eden. We were spiritually dead. Our spirit died. Christ made my spirit, quickened it, and made my spirit alive. And the word of God comes and can penetrate in between my soul and my spirit into the, into the part that <clears throat> we have a tough time. We look at ourselves and think, where does my soul begin and my spirit end? Where is my soul? Where is my spirit? We have a t the word of God can penetrate right in there. In fact, I think this is ultimately even speaking about salvation. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed of the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, ultimately, everybody gives an account of whether they have accepted or rejected Christ and the word of God can penetrate into someone's heart and convict them and go right to the very core of who they are and knows if they're saved or not. And knows. I was thinking about this. We often wrestle. What about people in third world countries that never hear the gospel? What about them? What happens to them if they've never even heard the gospel? And I would just simply say this, that... God knows. God knows if they did hear the gospel, how they'd respond. God knows what we don't know. God can send someone to them. God knows the choice they would make if they heard the truth. Pretty powerful. Here's the reality. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to God's goal for your life, it's know the author. You know why you want to know the author? Because the author knows you. At the deepest part of who you are, he knows you better than anybody. And what's so crazy is he knows you better than anybody and he loves and accepts you better than anybody. And if anybody would look at me, Bill Russell, and say, I don't know if I approve of you. <laughs> I don't know if I want you on my team. <clears throat>
And God looks at me and God says, yeah, because of Christ, you have gained my approval. And I want you to live for me and I want you to serve me and I want you to know I've made you holy and I've made you a new creation, given you new desires. And I want you to know that you can stop trying to earn my approval and just work from this place that says, you have my approval through Christ. Hmm, how beautiful, how amazing, how incredible is that. <clears throat> I was talking about take communion, you know. We don't have to sit there and, and, and try to scour our life for those things. Why? Because the Word of God will do that. The Word of God will just speak to me. If I need to know something, Spirit, I don't have to take time out to purposely examine my life. The Word of God can tell me, hey, Bill, you need to catch this. Spirit of truth will come along and say, hey, Bill, you need to know this. But when you're doing communion, let's focus on Christ. and Do this in remembrance of Him. Let me give you one last passage. <clears throat> one last passage. We'll close with this passage today. Speaking of the Word and God's approval. And I ran across some commentary on this week that made me really stop and study out this passage here. So we're, we're going to go here to uh, 2 Timothy 2. God's goal for you is not performance-based. It's actually relationship-based. Just know that. That's the ultimate reality. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember that Jesus Christ descended from David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, in which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This starts, note in verse 8, Paul is talking about, <clears throat> Paul is talking about my gospel. Paul had this gospel. And so everything Paul talks about here is going back to his gospel. Okay, he goes on. It is a faithful saying, and this was probably a saying that they would quote in worship it's probably something that Paul is quoting from somewhere else. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the ruin of the hearers. <clears throat> study to show yourself the proved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain utterances, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. I should note this translation here is the, it's the King James 2000 translation. So it's the literal King James, just a few alterations in the language to update it. I don't know why I didn't get, I, I thought that had the, on the screen somehow that's, uh, but anyway, that's not the ESV. And I chose that because some are familiar with this passage in the King James. Here is what Paul has just told us. So Paul has just made a couple of uh, points about my gospel. Listen to what he says. Going deeper into Paul's gospel, okay? First of all, there are some things worth suffering for. So Paul says there's this gospel, my gospel, and I have suffered for it, and I endured for it. I endured for the fact that there will be people that will hear my gospel and respond to it and get saved. And so, man, I've suffered and I've endured. Some things are worth suffering for. He goes on and he says there are some things that are not worth arguing over. You can read that in there. He say, there's some things, don't argue about some of these things. They're inconsequential. They're not significant to my gospel. They're not significant to someone's growth and relationship with Christ. And let's not get hung up on these things that are not worth arguing over. And then he goes on at the very end, and he says, there are some things that are so important, they need to be called out. And he called out two guys in particular who were going around and saying the resurrection already happened. Why was that a big deal? <clears throat> Well, because what they were saying basically was the resurrection happened, meaning that the resurrection happened when you were saved. It's spiritual. There's no bodily resurrection. That's what they were saying. There's, there's really no bodily resurrection. This is as good as it gets. You know, you were resurrected spiritually, and that's it. That would be pretty discouraging. I I'm, don't I'm, know, about, know about you. I'd be pretty discouraged. And there were a lot of people that were discouraged, and it says it overthrew some people's faith when they were told, there's not going to be a bodily resurrection. I mean, when I die, I'm not going to be resurrected again. And so Paul called them out for that. <clears throat> In the middle of that, though, is this great verse. 
And as I was thinking about this whole thing of approval, this is the first verse that came to mind, and I, I never didn't think I'd really get to it today that it would fit in, but at the end, it fits in so incredibly beautiful. Listen to this. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, it's clear that I can study in such a way that God will approve of my study. Clearly, God, God did not approve of those two men who were misrepresenting the resurrection and discouraging all these people. Clearly, God did not approve of that. So we can study in a way that approves God. But here's the question. Do I study to gain God's approval? Do I? Or could it not be? As I looked at this verse and as I meditated on this verse, think about this reality. Think about this reality. If we study properly, if we learn how to rightly divide, if we learn how to rightly divide between the Moses, the law given to Moses and the, and the grace that was given to Paul, if we learn how to divide the scriptures correctly and accurately and know the mail that's intended for us and the mail that's not necessarily intended for us, if we teach and handle the word correctly, will we not actually find the approval that we're looking for? Study to show yourself approved unto God. And when I study the Bible through Paul's gospel, when I understand the gospel of grace versus the gospel of law, you know what? You know what it tells me? Yes, you do not have to earn God's approval. You don't have to earn God's approval. That's the heartbeat of the message that Paul brought the message of his gospel in fact you know what else paul's gospel tells us over and over and over again there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus you want to be a workman what's a workman in this passage a workman is a laborer for the gospel a workman is a laborer for the gospel you want to be a laborer for the gospel that's not ashamed you know where you find that you find that in the gospel the gospel that says yes you are not ashamed there is nothing to be ashamed of in your life. Don't ever let the enemy, the, the devil, come and beat you down because of shame and say you're not good enough and you'll never measure up. And, and No, we need to know. We do not have to earn the approval of God. We do not have to be ashamed. God has taken our shame away. Think about that reality. Study to show yourself approved unto God. And the more that I study and understand and, and understand the difference between law and between grace, the more it validates I am approved and that I have no shame. And, and tucked away in the midst of this verse that we probably have missed forever are those two simple realities. So what did we learn today? We learned today. Going deeper into Paul's gospel, I put it on the screen. We find the approval we are looking for and the answer to our shame when we know how to differentiate between law and between grace. Anyway, what did we learn today? We learned that we don't live for God's approval, we live from God's approval. It's a big difference. We have been set free to live free. It takes a load off of our shoulders when we realize that. We learned that we are free from earning God's approval and we saw it through three perspectives. Our rest in Christ. There is a greater Sabbath rest out there that we need to be aware of. A greater Sabbath rest that we look forward to and we can rest in what Christ has done for us. And then we talked about our focus being on Christ. That we focus on His work and not our works. Whether our works are good or whether our works are not good, let's not focus on us. Let's focus on Christ. And know that it is finished indeed. And then finally, the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. And we just simply know that God's goal is not a performance-based goal. His goal is that we would know Him just as He knows us. How beautiful that is. I'll leave you with just this thought. And uh, I don't have time to read the article. It's a lengthy article, but... I remember some time ago uh, being conflicted because you read all these great quotes from Mother Teresa and she says all these amazing quotes. And, and then I was always struggled because you would read her theology. You'd read, she, she was someone who did not understand Paul's gospel. She didn't understand this whole thing of grace and, 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 and not working for your salvation and the approval of She just didn't understand it. If you read how she believed someone was saved and she comes out of Catholicism and Catholicism has a lot of that in there. There's a lot of works wrapped up in Catholicism. 
But I found an article this week and I was just reading it and it starts out in the beginning and she's saying all these things about how we need to be sold out for Christ and how we need to pour our life out for Christ and we need to do all these great deeds for Christ and, and it was just this, this great stuff and it's beautiful to hear and it's eloquently stated and said. And then it seems that Mother Teresa had written a bunch of letters and she didn't even want these letters to come out necessarily. The church released them. These letters came out and these letters showed someone who didn't feel close to God at all. You should read the article. It's sad. She felt she didn't even know if God was there. And her life was just one black... She said she knew there was, there was a huge gap between what people saw in the public and what she said publicly and what she felt privately in her heart. God felt so distant. God felt so removed. And, and you read this, and I still, I've read, read so many quotes this week from her, and it's like, what a great quote, you know. And then you see what's really going on in her soul and in her heart and how far she felt from God and, and how God seemed so not even there. And, and her soul was just filled with so much darkness. Yeah, that's the reality. When you think you have to earn God's approval, when you don't understand grace, everything you do, it doesn't come from a place of rest. It doesn't come from a place of joy. It doesn't come from a place of freedom. And I think that was probably Mother Teresa's issue. You know, she may not really, may not really have known the author of the book that she was so diligently serving all those years. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your grace. Lord, help us know you as we're known. Help us, help us this week just want to get to know you. If that means we read the Bible more, so be it. If we pray more, so be it. If we take more walks out in nature, so be it. If we share our faith with others, so be it. Whatever it looks like, but Lord, whatever it is, we just want to know you and to make you known. We just want to glorify you with our life. And Lord, thank you that we don't have to earn your approval. Thank you that you know us better than anyone and you love us more than anyone. And that might sound really hard. So this week, Lord, here's, here's our prayer as a church family. Lord, may we all strive, may we all work really hard this week to enter your rest and to, and to put it all on your shoulders and to, and to let the good works that you have intended for us to do, that you have planned for us to do, that those good works would just flow out of us, wherever we go, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.